Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I'm John Hill. This is The Weeds. And a quick content warning up top. Today's episode is about gun violence and mass shootings. Please listen with care. I was eight the first time I remember it happening. Morning. Uh, right now, SWAT teams and uh, the bomb squad are inside Columbine High School making a, a second sweep of that building. They found further explosives within... But it turns out it wasn't an anomaly. It happened again. At this afternoon hour, at least 30 people believed to be killed on the campus of Virginia Tech University. That's and again. To a school shooting at an elementary school in Newtown. It's roughly two hours. And again. The first 911 calls came in just before Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School let out for the day. And then again. Because of an awful scene playing out today in Texas, an active shooter for a time at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. This is about 80 miles outside of San Antonio. There is work. And it just keeps happening. Whenever these tragedies happen, we always ask, will this be the moment that things change? And almost every time, nothing does. But last year, after the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, Congress passed the first piece of federal gun legislation in almost 30 years. The bill includes enhancing background checks for gun buyers under 21, closing the so-called boyfriend loophole, which would prevent people convicted of domestic violence from owning guns and providing funding for school security and mental health programs. It stops short of banning or raising the age to buy AR-15-style guns. But... Here we are, again. At least three children are reported dead after a shooting at Covenant School, a private Christian school in Nashville. The Metro Nashville Police Department... Often in mass shootings, assault-style weapons are used. And after these tragedies, gun reform advocates often renew the call to ban these kinds of weapons. But there was a time when we did have a federal assault weapons ban. So today... We're hopping in the weeds time machine and going back to 1994 to talk about how this ban passed in the first place and why it's so hard to tell if it worked. And we're going with one of the preeminent scholars on guns and gun violence. I am Professor Adam Winkler at UCLA School of Law and the author of Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. So... The assault weapons ban was part of the 1994 crime bill. 
What exactly did the ban do? The 1994 assault weapons ban prohibited the sale of certain types of firearms defined as assault weapons. These were listed by make and model or identified by certain characteristics, such as a semi-automatic rifle with a detachable magazine and two or more military-style features. The law was designed to target these weapons that are associated with military use and their high-capacity magazines, which hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition. This was a ban, but it didn't necessarily ban people from owning assault weapons. What did it do? That's right. The 1994 assault weapons ban grandfathered in existing weapons that were already owned by civilians. So if you had one of these prohibited firearms before the ban went into effect, you were allowed to keep it. The ban was effectively uh, a prohibition on the sale of these kinds of firearms. You've mentioned the military characteristics of guns and those being banned. What kinds of characteristics were banned at the time? Well, the assault weapons ban targeted semi-automatic weapons that had a detachable magazine and had two or more military-style characteristics, such as a pistol grip, a folding or telescoping stock, a bayonet mount, or a flash hider. Now, these were characteristics that were commonplace on military-style weapons, but were targeted nonetheless by this law as things that made assault weapons much more dangerous. Of course, when we look at these characteristics, it's really hard to be persuaded that those characteristics themselves were associated with a lot of violence. For instance, whether or not a firearm has a bayonet mount, or a flash hider, it's probably not going to be closely associated with the amount of violence or death and destruction that can be caused by that firearm. So what was the impact on manufacturers? Because I think when you talk about a gun ban, I know in my mind, I automatically think to how that's impacting consumers. But the gun lobby is huge. Gun companies are huge. What was the impact for them? Well, for the gun companies, it required them to do a little bit of innovation so that they could try to sell the exact same weapons. To get around the law, the manufacturers simply made the exact same firearms, but just with fewer of the military-style characteristics. And these firearms became immensely popular, and millions of them were sold despite the fact that the ban was in effect. Can you tell us about the political climate that gave us the ban? I mean, it's hard to imagine something like this ever passing now. Back in 1994, there was much more willingness, especially among Republicans, to support gun safety reform. We saw around the same time the adoption of the Brady background check bill that required background checks for the sale of firearms by gun dealers. And we saw this military-style assault weapons ban and high-capacity magazine ban made part of federal law. There was real concern about mass shootings at the time, and the NRA, although it was obviously a political powerhouse, didn't quite have the hold on the Republican Party that it has today. And so the assault weapons ban and the Brady background check law 
were supported by a good number of lawmakers from both parties. The assault weapons ban was sunsetted in 2004. Why was that? Well, when the law was adopted, supporters accepted a compromise that included a 10-year sunset on the law. That is to say that after 10 years, the law would no longer be in effect. And if Congress wanted to continue to ban assault weapons, it would have to pass a new law in 2004. However, by 2004, the politics around guns were already shifting, and pretty radically. President George W. Bush expressed support for renewing an assault weapons ban, but Republicans in Congress were dead set against renewing the law, and the law ended up sunsetting, and no new law was passed in its place. What changed between 1994 and 2004? Why wasn't the political will there that time around? By 2004, the gun issue was becoming much more partisan than it had been. Previously, you had Republicans and Democrats in support of gun safety reform. And you had some Republicans and Democrats opposed to gun safety reform. But the political parties were realigning. And we are finding much more uniform support or opposition to gun laws by the two different political parties. And by 2004, most Republicans had realized that support for gun safety reform uh, would hurt them in primary elections, uh, where the more extreme voters of both parties tend to show up. The NRA during this time also became a more active political force. Although the NRA has been active in politics really since the 1960s, the NRA became much more determined to defeat any new gun safety laws, and the assault weapons ban was one of the first to fall. America has a very unique and long history with guns and gun ownership. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, Americans have always had the right to own guns. Sometimes that has been recognized by courts, but even when it's not been recognized by courts, it's been a matter of fact that lawmakers just haven't prohibited Americans from owning guns the way lawmakers in Japan, for instance, or South Korea or England or France have banned people from owning guns. America has uh, been a heavily armed society for a long, long time, and it's not just because of the Second Amendment. It's because of uh, a general political attitude that people, especially people in rural communities, should have access to firearms for personal protection. At the same time, while we've always had a right to bear arms, we've also always had gun safety legislation. And it's important to recognize that even the founding fathers who wrote the Second Amendment had gun safety laws. And gun safety laws have been an important part of American history, too. One thing I think it's important to recognize is, is that you can have a right to bear arms and good and effective gun safety laws. We just need to work a little bit harder to find that proper balance. Why don't we have that balance? Where, where is the disconnect happening for Americans? I think the disconnect is not about guns, but about American politics. Guns are just one issue among very many that really divide Americans. And on most of these issues, because of that divide, we don't see significant reform. 
So it's not really a gun problem as much as guns are representative of a larger problem in American politics, which is that we just can't find the ability to compromise right now on the big issues that divide us. Adam Winkler is a professor at UCLA School of Law. All right, now we know what the 94 ban was and how it happened. Next up, did it work? Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAPP. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Welcome back. This is The Weeds. So we've laid out the basics of the 1994 assault weapons ban, and now it's time to get into its impact. The thing is, the data we do have is complicated, which makes finding out what effect it had on gun violence difficult to suss out. So we reached out to an organization that's conducted in-depth analysis of those numbers. My name is Andrew Morale, and I'm a senior behavioral scientist at the RAND Corporation. I run our Gun Policy in America initiative. I asked Andrew to lay out what the numbers were looking like back when the ban was enacted. The country was just passing the peak of firearms violence and homicides, which was around 1993. And so there was a lot of concern about firearms and violence, especially in the cities. The crack cocaine epidemic had been burning hard for a number of years. And there was a lot of motivation to change the laws in ways that might reduce some of that violence. So how did the number change during the decade that the ban was placed? Did things change? Well, this is controversial. It turns out it's it's hard to evaluate what the effects of this 
ban were. Mm. I think most researchers now believe that the ban had probably mixed effects on gun violence. It may have reduced the use of assault weapons in gun crimes, but that seems to have been compensated for by other kinds of crimes. It didn't have an obvious effect on mass shootings, Mm. for instance. Although when the ban lapsed in 2004, mass shootings did start increasing and the share of those shootings that used assault weapons rose dramatically. I want to talk about gun-related crimes. I mean, you talked about mass shootings, and they understandably get a lot of attention. I mean, they're these large, tragic, really scary events, but they aren't that common compared to a lot of other crimes. What do most of the shootings in the country look like? More than 50% of shootings are with handguns. Almost two-thirds of shootings are suicides. So the uh, shootings that involve a rifle, it's less than 4%. Uh, and, you know, assault weapons would be a subset of those. Can you talk about the popularity of assault weapons? Do we have a breakdown of, you know, what kind of weapons most Americans own? So there are some estimates. The National Shooting Sports Foundation estimates that there's about 20 million assault weapons in private hands right now. So they are a very popular weapon. Their popularity has been rising since the uh, ban was suspended. And something like uh, 20% of firearm owners own own one now. Mm. So they're very common. Have we seen that change over the years or has that sort of been consistent? The uh, attraction of these weapons that are called assault weapons, so the, the, the gun industry doesn't call them assault weapons. Oh, they what do they them, call them? Mo- they call them uh, modern sporting rifles. And they they would argue that an assault rifle is, is an automatic weapon like you would give to a soldier. Mm. Uh, and, and so they want to draw that distinction. There's the million-dollar question of, did the 94 assault weapons ban have an impact on gun fatalities? And sort of, you know, we're not sure. Why aren't we sure uh, of the impact we had? What's What's going on with that data? There's a few reasons why it's really hard to evaluate this. One is that it might take a long time for a ban like the assault weapons ban to have an effect. Because, you know, one thing we know for sure is that when the ban was announced that, the, you know, it was going to go in effect later that year, people ran out and bought these weapons because it allowed for weapons to be grandfathered. Mm. If you already had one of these weapons, you could keep it. And if you had one of these uh, large capacity magazines, you could keep it. So there was a huge surge in sales of of these weapons right before it went into effect. You could almost imagine that the effect of the law might be to increase the number of these kinds of weapons, at least in the short run. And so that creates a kind of confusing effect that's hard to tease out. There are other factors that make it hard to, to look at this. I mean, one thing is that, you know, I mentioned that 1993 was the peak of firearms homicides in the country. And for two decades, they declined after that. Mm. So the ban coincided with a period when all kinds of violence, including, you know, rapes and assaults and, and other kinds of violence were declining. And so you have to somehow tease out whether any reductions in mass shootings or gun crimes with these kinds of weapons can be attributed to the law versus to this general trend that was occurring in society. I think what a lot of people expect and hope with an assault weapons ban is that they would cut into mass shootings in particular. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of difficulties studying the effects of laws on mass shootings. One is that 
they're statistically kind of rare. Depending on how you define them, we maybe had six or maybe 300 or 500 mass shootings last year. And so if you're using a very restrictive definition, like mass shootings that involve four or more fatalities, not including the shooter, that occur in a public place, that don't involve another felony crime or, or domestic violence, then you're, you're talking about a fairly statistically rare event. And so the, it's very lumpy. And, you know, over time, how many of these are occurring? And so, you know, in order to see a law effect on that kind of noisy data, it would have to be very, very large, probably larger than we could expect from an assault weapons ban. So that, there's that sort of statistical problem with isolating the effect. Uh, there's also problems with, as I was mentioning, defining what a mass shooting is. People have lots of different definitions. There is no standard government definition of that. There's no data sets that collect this information systematically or, or at least comprehensively. Uh, so people rely on you know, data collected by individuals or private organizations uh, or other uh, data sources like that. None of them are comprehensive. They are all missing key events. So you can get a lot of different answers depending on your definitions and the data you use. I think of the lack of data, and it also sort of reminds me, you know, the Washington Post has that big database of, you know, officer-involved shootings. Or, you know, there are just there are these huge gaps in data in American policy and I'm curious why we have that gap in gun data in particular. It's very frustrating for researchers like me who are trying to understand the effects of these laws. I don't have a good answer for this. I, I suspect that, you know, in some cases it's because it's controversial for the government to be collecting information about firearms and firearms violence. Basic data like how many people own guns is not systematically collected Almost 20 years ago, when the federal government did ask that question on one of its flagship surveys of risk factors. And so even today, research on gun policy often uses data that's almost 20 years old on, on gun ownership rates. We haven't invested very much in this as a country. And I think it's, it's one of the things that makes it very hard to do research in this area. Another example is um, firearm injuries. Most people believe firearm injuries are you know, more common than firearm deaths. Oh, wow. But we don't have good information about how many firearm injuries there are in the U.S. Uh, at the state level, for instance, over time. So that makes it that much harder to to identify the effects of gun laws on, on an outcome like that. Could you talk to us a little bit about the 1996 Dickey Amendment and maybe the role that could possibly play in all of this? So what happened was the CDC was doing some research on gun ownership and what the effects of having a gun in your home are. And the research that was finding that people who had a, had a gun in the home were uh, more likely to die of a gunshot wound. And that created a, a lot of pushback uh, by advocacy organizations. Um, uh, gun rights groups felt that that research was biased somehow. Although I, I will say that that there's lots of research that has been been done quite recently that seems to verify uh, what was found that back then. And so there was pushback, and Congress got involved, and Jay Dickey uh, had his name on a bill that required that the government, that CDC in particular, no longer perform any uh, what they called advocacy research. And they also rescinded uh, an amount of the CDC's budget equal to what they had been spending on all firearms research. So it didn't say you couldn't do research, but it did say 
can't do advocacy research. CDC didn't think they had been doing advocacy research, but they got the message. And the message was, this is this is a third rail. We can't touch this kind of work. By about 2010, that Dickey Amendment had been uh, brought into every appropriations bill since 1996. It was expanded to include NIH. And we actually still have it today. Even though in uh, 2019, Congress voted to start funding gun violence research. They kept the Dickey Amendment. Uh, The theory was that the Dickey Amendment offered some sort of guardrails so that the bad advocacy research of the past would never occur again. It would only be straight objective research uh, going forward with this money. I want to dig into this data because one of the things that I find really interesting about numbers is that once you have the data people are going to come to their own conclusions about what it says. Research on firearms violence is really controversial, and a lot of people are very suspicious of it. When you look at surveys of, you know, what are the most controversial science policy questions, it's climate change, guns, and then immunizations. It's things like that. And, uh, and so there's a, there's a large swath of the public and policymakers who are skeptical of uh, research in this area and think that, you know, I think very often feel that research that, that draws conclusions different than their priors is probably biased. I don't think that's true. I think that there's uh, a lot of very good objective research going on right now. How do you all at RAND get this data? It's some of the most comprehensive gun data that we have. How do you go about collecting it? The project that I lead, the Gun Policy in America project at RAND, our goal is to assemble information on what we do and don't know about gun policies with the objective of informing the public and policymakers so that they can create sensible, effective laws that are fair. And we do it in several different ways. I mean, one thing we do is we maintain a systematic review of all the research on the effects of gun laws. And this is not just the effects on you know mass shootings and suicides and homicides, but also on outcomes of concern to gun owners. Like, how do these laws affect people's ability to defend themselves? Or how does it affect the industry? So we have this ongoing systematic review of uh, all the research that's going on. And that's, that's basically a literature review. In terms of assembling data, one of the things that's useful for us in our own research and, and other researchers is we have a a gun law database, a state gun law database we've been pulling together. It's got thousands of laws in it, and we make it available to the public. It turns out it's kind of hard to assemble this, and we're still making error corrections. And uh, it's not something you can just Google, it turns out, uh, to figure out when states had laws and didn't have laws. Sometimes it requires actually going to a state law library to find out some of this stuff. We have assembled that data set ourselves. Other data sets we've estimated. So for instance, I mentioned before that we don't have good data that's less than 15 years old on gun ownership, but we we have developed uh, models of gun ownership using available information that we can assemble. And so we've published a a data set of of gun ownership over time at the state level. Uh, We've got a new one coming out soon uh, that, that does that and breaks it down by demographic subgroups. We've got another data set we created out of a model again of, um, of firearm injuries at the, at the state level. Uh, so some of this is uh, information that we just have collected. Some of it is information we've produced and uh, we share it online. Okay, so that's the state of the data on guns. 
Up next, what do we do with it? Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, we're back, and this is The Weeds. We're talking with Andrew Morale of the RAND Corporation about gun data. So, Andrew, before the break, you mentioned the state-by-state database you all have. One of the things that I find really interesting about American public policy is that it can be very piecemeal because of the authority that states have. But are there any trends that we're seeing right now? Yeah, the trends we've been seeing for a while, I think, are still on. Oh, there's a, I mean, there's a big random variable, which is this Bruin decision by the Supreme Court uh, in last summer. It has thrown kind of a wild card in everything. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? So in the summer of 2022, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Bruin that shall issue laws. This is a kind of concealed carry law where law enforcement has to provide a concealed carry permit to anyone who's qualified to carry a gun, that those have to be the law of the land now. And that meant that that states like uh, New York and California and several others had to change the way they were issuing concealed carry permits, had to make it much more available. But in making that change, they also made some very fundamental changes to the way that Second Amendment cases would be evaluated in the future. Uh, And this has had big ramifications. In particular, what they said was that the primary consideration in whether a law violates the Second Amendment is just whether there's a history and tradition of s- such a law, and and a particular a history and tradition from early American history, mm. and that's tricky. When I mean, we didn't have assault weapons in in early American history, we had muskets, and uh, we didn't have the same kinds of uh, laws around domestic violence, and we didn't have, you know, all all kinds of things are are different now. And so there's a big question about how you apply this new standard for evaluating Second Amendment cases. And I'm not an expert on this, but I'm aware that. There have been a lot of cases brought 
uh, in in state and federal courts now uh, since the Bruin decision that are calling into question some very fundamental firearm laws that we've had on the books for a long time. What's the trend we're seeing in the states right now? Like, how are how are things leaning overall across the country? So the trend we've seen for a long time, and which we continue to see, is that blue states, mostly coastal states, are trying to impose more restrictive firearm laws, and red states are are trending in the opposite direction towards more and more permissive laws. So, you know, in the last uh, 20 years or so, stand your ground laws have become very, very popular in more than half of all states. This is what we would call a, a permissive law. Uh, it makes it easier to use guns in a confrontation. The uh, permitless carry is another law that has been very popular in, in red states. Meanwhile, in blue states and some purple states, the trend has been going in the other direction. So Illinois just passed uh, a, an assault weapons ban this year, uh, and, and that makes it, like, I think, the eighth state to have uh, such a ban. Uh, Washington is well on its way to potentially uh, passing an assault weapons ban. And states like New York and California are, are exploring what they can do about the, the Bruin decision, looking at ways of making concealed carry less common than it might otherwise be if, if they didn't make further adjustments after Bruin. In the wake of the shooting at the Covenant School, there have been renewed calls for an assault weapons ban. We've even heard it from the president. So I again call on Congress to pass the assault weapons ban. Pass it. It should not be a partisan issue. Why are we seeing a focus on this particular piece of gun policy if, you know, the numbers don't show that it necessarily has that big of an impact? The numbers don't show that it doesn't have an impact. It's just Mm -hmm. very hard to say whether it does or doesn't. And I think for a lot of people, the fact that the use of assault weapons started rising after the ban expired is uh, fairly persuasive evidence for them that the ban could be helpful. I think that there's a kind of logical argument, particularly around uh, high-capacity magazine bans, which are part, usually part of uh, assault weapons bans, that you know, if you can't fire as many bullets as rapidly, you probably can't hurt as many people mm. as rapidly. And so you know, I think there's a lot of attraction to those high-capacity magazine bans on logical grounds. There's also, you know, in our review of evidence, we say that the effect of assault weapons bans is inconclusive right now at this point, but we say that the evidence on high-capacity magazine bans is, you know, there's some limited evidence that it reduces mass shootings. And so there, there is some evidence for, for that. I think that, that the high-capacity magazine bans are also potentially more effective in that they don't just apply to the limited group of assault weapons that tend not to be used in crimes anyhow. But they apply to any weapon that can that can have a detachable magazine or, or or a fixed magazine with more than you know ten or fifteen rounds of ammunition, and so that that ends up being a much wider class of of weapons. So that that is potentially a feature of the law that I think a lot of people think could have an effect on firearms violence. Are there any other gun policies that the data shows work? What are some other things that could be happening? And beyond, you know, mass shootings, beyond assault weapons, what are some of the things that would make a difference in the number of gun fatalities we have in the U.S.? 
So in the in the systematic review we maintain in, on the Gun Policy in America website, we have identified a few laws that we think have the strongest evidence of an effect. One of them is child access prevention laws. These are kind of safe storage law that say, you know, you got to keep your gun locked up if there's any chance of a kid getting them. There's lots of research now that suggests that these laws are associated with reductions in childhood fatalities, childhood suicide, childhood injuries, uh, even uh, homicides of children. This is one of the laws that seems to be effective. There are a couple laws that, that have this highest level of evidence that we rate that appear to actually do harm. And so maybe getting, getting rid of those would benefit states. Uh, one of them is stand your ground. There's fairly consistent evidence that firearm homicides increase when uh, stand your ground statutes are passed. Another is shall issue laws. These are the concealed carry laws that the Bruin decision said every state now must have. And so based on our research, we suspect that the states that had the more restrictive laws prior to Bruin are going to face higher firearm violence as a result of the of that decision, unless they do something that counteracts the effects of that decision. In our evaluation of, of the effects of gun laws, we, we rank how much evidence there is for uh, different possible effects of gun laws. The highest rating is, is uh, supportive evidence. And then the second highest rating is, is moderate evidence. And we think that there's moderate evidence that uh, minimum age requirements for purchasing a firearm appear to decrease firearm suicides among young people. There's uh, moderate evidence that uh, domestic violence restraining orders that, that prohibit uh, people who've been served those orders from having guns seem to reduce intimate partner homicides. There's moderate evidence that laws requiring prohibited possessors to um, surrender their firearms reduce intimate partner homicides again. And uh, there's moderate evidence that Background checks on private sales mm. uh, of, of firearms uh, can reduce total homicides and firearm homicides. Those are a few. I mean, there's more, but but I, I think I'll, I'll bore you if I keep going. One of the things that excites me about policy is the experimentation aspect of it. You know, we have 50 states and a District of Columbia who can all try different things in these different ways. And it feels like we're not really throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because we don't think of it as a public health emergency the way we think of, you know, smoking or the way, you know, we saw kind of how things happened very quickly when the coronavirus pandemic began. And I just, I wonder why we're not just trying stuff, why we're not just getting data and trying a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, it really it is it is puzzling and and you know it's it's also puzzling because in surveys and polls it appears that there is an appetite in the public for trying more things, trying more laws, more regulations to reduce firearms violence. Some policies like background checks on private sales poll incredibly well even with gun owners. 80% or more of Americans think that's a good idea. So why don't we have those laws everywhere? We have them in a few states, but they haven't passed uh, any you know, federal bills that would do that, although there have been some proposed. I think it's, uh, it's a political mess right now. And, uh, and I think that lawmakers are concerned about appearing to be weak on the Second Amendment, 
you know, they're likely to be targeted by groups that, that are Second Amendment absolutists. If they um, show any, any sign of interest in those kinds of popular regulations. So, uh, yeah, I think we're stuck that way. States are doing better. States, you know, there is more experimentation going on in the states. As I was saying before, I mean, there are states that are, are imposing more restrictive gun laws than states that are, are dropping them. And I think, the, you know, the states that are dropping them, a lot of people believe that dropping them will make people safer. And uh, that's not what we've been finding in our own research. Uh, we find that more restrictive gun laws reduces uh, gun violence and suicide. But I think that there's a belief among many people and, and many gun owners that having you know more guns in the uh, community makes people safer. So I consider myself very much an optimist, which, you know, I feel like is becoming more and more rare these days. But I remember Columbine. That's the first mass shooting I remember. I was eight years old in elementary school. And then I remember Virginia Tech. And I remember Sandy Hook. And I remember the shooting at Mother Emanuel. And how after that, you know, my church was like, all right, we're going to start having security at church every Sunday. And the day of the Covenant shooting, I was off work. And I was sitting in a coffee shop reading and I got the news alert and I just looked around and I realized, wow, there's only one entrance in this coffee shop. Someone could come in here and wreak havoc. And, you know, I think about it when I'm at the grocery store. I think about it when I'm at movie theaters. And it's sort of this one piece of policy that I think is the most difficult for me to be optimistic about that will be able to find this balance between, you know, protecting these Second Amendment rights. There are people who hunt and there are people that do it for sport. There are collectors and and just finding this balance between having that right, which has been enshrined in our Constitution, which is not going anywhere because of the constitutionality and, you know, public opinion, but also, you know, wanting to feel safe and not necessarily think, okay, where are my exits? What's happening? What's What am I going to do in case this happens? And is there anything at all right now that makes you hopeful about policy, about, you know, America, we're going to get this together and we're going to figure this out? Is there anything that kind of gives you that sliver of hope? It's hard to find the the hopeful angle here, but I, I, I can point to one thing. For 20 years or more, there was pretty limited amount of research going on about how to prevent gun violence. And that was after the Dickey Amendment. You know, the federal government really wasn't funding very much work in that area. And then starting at the end of the Obama administration and with some things that some philanthropies did, including starting the the National Collaborative on Gun Violence Research, which was a uh, private philanthropy that I direct that got $25 million to distribute for gun violence prevention research. And the federal government started funding it again in 2019, 2020, uh, and has renewed that funding each year since then. As a result, we now have more research going on and, and important findings coming out pretty regularly than we've had in decades, probably forever. And I think that there's some 
there's some optimism there. There is, you know, important work being done on, you know, the effects of violence interrupters in city streets and how they are or are not helping reduce gun violence. There's been really good work on the risks of having a firearm in in the home. There's good work being done on preventing uh, police shootings. Research isn't the only way of getting there, but I think it's one of the optimistic developments of recent years that I, I think will probably help to reduce gun violence. Andrew Morrell, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thank you. I enjoyed it. That's all for us today. Thank you to Adam Winkler and Andrew Morrell for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Krishna Ayala engineered this episode. Caitlin Pinsey-Moog fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, Jonquilin Hill. We want to hear from you. Your burning policy questions, your thoughts on the show. Send us an email, weeds at vox.com. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.